It is so good to be with you here this morning, and it's even better to be in community with you week in and week out over the course of the years. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Rick Gerhardt, and I'm one of the elders here at Antioch, and it's my privilege this morning to to deliver the sermon. We're in a six-week sermon series uh, for the season of Lent. Uh, Lent, of course, is a season of preparation that's observed by Christians throughout the world today and by Christians through much of church history in preparation for the celebration of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most significant events in all of church history. Um, Pete kicked off our series two weeks ago and then preached again last week. And just by way of conducting a little family business here, I want to let you know that you're not going to see Pete preaching again until Easter Sunday. Uh, so we have some, some good speakers coming up in the next few weeks, uh, aside from today. And, uh, and you need to know that, that it's by design that the elders have asked Pete to spend this month of March uh, in preparation for leading us forward from, from next month onward. So the transition in which we've just uh, found ourselves of, of the leaving of our founding pastor, Ken, and the taking over of Pete as lead pastor uh, was not a, a long prepared exit strategy sort of thing. It was rather sudden. And so we've just asked, uh, the elders have just asked Pete to take some time of focused prayer and study and envisioning that he can carry us forward uh, beginning next month. So Pete's going to be around. You'll probably see him up here doing announcements and things like that. But he's not preaching these next few weeks. And he's also not going to be as available to meet with you members of the congregation as he delights in doing otherwise. And that's, that's by design and by the request of, of the elders. Okay. So um, the six sermons that we're preaching in this sixth Sunday season of Lent have to do with the different areas of reconciliation that God is about. Um, And today we're going to talk about community. And and by community, some of what I say will certainly be uh, applicable to the church universal but really what we're talking about this morning is the local community, and, and in the context of most of you, that is Antioch. So we want to talk about the reconciliation that Christ is working out in the local community of Antioch. Um, and so as disciples of Christ, as, as we recognize that the death and resurrection of Jesus were the most significant events in church history, it, it behooves us to ask ourselves, well, what was God up to? What is God up to? And and what is our role as partners with him, uh, as as his disciples? And for most of my church experience, and and really for most of the history of what we would call modern evangelicalism, the answers to those questions have been, well, God is up to saving human souls for eternal life. And our role as Christ's disciples is to, to help him save human souls. And and the proof text for those answers would be John 3.16, right? But we've come to a place of understanding uh, here at Antioch and in other churches where a a bit of a mini-reformation is going on today, that while those are not wrong answers, those are only partial answers to the questions. That in fact, a better, more robust and, and complete answer to the question of what God is up to would be found in a passage such as Colossians 1.20 which says in effect that what God was doing through Christ's death and resurrection is reconciling to himself 
all created things, okay? This passage is part of a larger passage, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, which New Testament scholars recognize is not original with Paul. That is, this is, a, this is an early church creed, a poetic set of sayings, if you will, that was already extant within the early church. When they got together, they would say this to one another to remind themselves of what God was up to in the death and resurrection of Jesus, okay? And, and the passage makes it clear that it's not just human souls that are in view here. It's not even just human person's body and soul, but that God is in Christ by the blood of the cross reconciling all created things to himself, and so uh, a couple of years ago, we, we asked artist and former Antioch intern Paul Krauss to give us a graphic depiction of, of what the areas of reconciliation that are in view here are. And so this is, this is the cross that resulted from that request. And so these are six areas of human relationships uh, that were broken at the fall and that are being redeemed by... Uh, the blood of Christ on the cross. The first is humanity's relationship with God himself. The second is God's, uh, humanity's relationship with others. And we've further subdivided that for our purposes into city, church, and world. And then the relationship between humanity and self has been broken and is being reconciled. And the relationship between humanity and the rest of creation was broken at the fall and is part of the reconciling work of God's master plan, okay? And so when we look at it this way, we, we can realize that not only was the death and resurrection of Jesus the most important events in church history, but also in all of human history. And that's, just not, that's not just my biased opinion as one who believes that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Any honest historian today would say that taking a look at the lives of every individual who's ever lived, clearly by far the most influential life ever lived was that of this person we called Jesus of Nazareth. And as we understand that God had more in mind than just the saving of human souls, we can look back from outside our evangelical perspective and realize that the, history, the, the human history since the time of the resurrection is really all about Jesus' disciples, eyewitnesses to the resurrection, going from that place and changing the world in radical ways. This is a little difficult, I think, sometimes for us to understand um, because we are ourselves uh, the heirs and the products of uh, centuries of Christian thinking. And so we kind of take for granted and, and we can overlook the Christian basis of our democracy and of every good aspect of the civilization in which we live. Um, we could maybe get a better perspective if we traveled more wild, widely. And so our, our founding pastor, Ken, uh, had the opportunity these last few years as lead pastor global of Antioch, as the founder of the Justice Conference, and as the president of Kilns College, to travel far and wide in this world. And, and the bottom line understanding that he gained from all his travels, something he shared with the elders uh, only recently, was that the church remains by far the most powerful agent for good in our world today. And that's the same understanding we get from a look at human history. But let's think about it a minute. 
Jesus came to earth to a, a, a really insignificant minor population, a minor tribe, the Israelites, who were themselves conquered and subdued by the mighty Roman Empire, right? And, and he chose to pour his life into a group of folks that were largely poor, young, and uneducated, fishermen and such. And yet today, when we look around us and see all the good aspects of civilization, those are attributable not to the mighty Roman Empire, which, which has left us really very little legacy except for a few large crumbling buildings. They're attributable to those disciples who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection and to their subsequent descendants. That when we understand that God is in Christ reconciling all things to himself, we see that the descendants of those early disciples traveled around the world, not only sharing the good news that we as human beings can be reconciled to an all-holy God, but taking with them literacy and the founding of hospitals and orphanages and leper colonies and eventually establishing public school systems and universities and even democracies. Again, it's hard for us to, to realize that based on our having centuries of Christian understanding undergirding everything we do. Today, uh, multi-billionaires can found universities without any reference to, to God or Jesus Christ. But the idea of the university has always been the unification of every discipline of human learning into the single lordship of Jesus Christ. So the whole idea of hospitals, of, of places where you would care medically, not just for the governing elites or for your own family, but for people of all ages and, and socioeconomic conditions, that's a Christian idea. Today, a pro golfer can, can found a clinic or a hospital. But when doing so, he's just downstream of the Christian idea of caring for the physical needs of all individuals. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let me give you one more example. So today, we, our, our culture has a very high regard for science, for, especially for the fact that it enables us to, to live more comfortably. It's eradicated certain diseases, and, and its technology makes our lives much better. But in our day, it's... If not scientists, it's uh, atheists who appeal to science as somehow having undermined the idea that, that there is a God and that he cares about us, right? Okay? But the fact of the matter, the historical fact of the matter is that modern science was birthed uniquely out of a Christian understanding. And that even today, although an atheist can pursue science, the assumptions that make science a worthwhile endeavor come from a Christian worldview. And you don't just have to take my word for it. I've got a quote here from popular science writer Paul Davies, who himself is not a Christian but an agnostic. And he says, even the most atheistic scientist accepts as an act of faith that the universe is not absurd, that there is a rational basis to physical existence manifested as law-like order in nature, that is at least partly comprehensible to us. So science can proceed only if the scientist adopts an essentially theological worldview. Paul Davies. Okay, so 
maybe we can go back to the, the cross graphic. If, if, if our understanding is correct, that God is in the business of reconciling all of these different relationships to himself, and we're coming today to talk about the church community, the, the local community of believers, we can do that in, in two ways. In just a minute, I'll share about the fact that we need reconciliation, that, that the church community is not all that it is intended to be, that we uh, shoot each other in the back with arrows, that we harm one another and, and we take offense and that sort of thing. We are in need of supernatural reconciliation, right? But the other thing I want to share is that in the reconciliation of all of these other areas of human relationships, reconciliation within the community of believers is foundational to everything else, uh, as represented by its place in the center of this cross. So I could take each of these other areas and show you how it begins with reconciliation in the church. Let, let me just give you one example. How can we expect to bring healing and restoration and reconciliation to our city, that is to our, the folks in our workplaces and, and our neighbors, which is a, a group of very diverse people, most of whom don't even share the correct understanding with us of the basic questions of life, like, is there a God? What's he like? What is humanity's origin and destiny? How can we expect to bring restoration to such a group if we can't even be at peace and reconciled to one another in a group like this, where we all share the correct answers to, to those basic life questions, right? But even our relationship with God himself depends upon reconciliation within the church. Um, very, very rarely does the Lord directly reveal himself to individuals, as he did with Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus as apparently he's doing today in Muslim countries where there is no Christian influence. God is visiting people directly in their visions and dreams and telling him of his son Jesus. But even in those situations where there's a direct attempt at reconciliation with the individual, the next part of the message is go and find my disciples in a local community of them, okay? So our understanding of what reconciliation with God is like depends upon our, our reconciliation with, depends upon the local community of believers and, and the teaching that's found there and the example of reconciliation that, that we see in such local communities. Um, I spent a little time on this part because it's very popular in our individualistic society today to think that I can be a disciple of Christ without the local body of believers, right? The, the thought goes, I've, I've got Jesus in my heart, I've got the Holy Spirit in my mind, I've got my Bible in my hand, I don't need the church with its hypocrisies and its brokenness, right? There's a lot of problems with that way of thinking, but the, the main one is there's nothing, the, the Bible knows nothing of such discipleship. You cannot take your, your New Testament seriously without being hit over the, the face with the fact that, as, as Pastor Ken used to have it, the church is God's plan A, and he doesn't have a plan B, okay? So for whatever reason, reasons of his own, the Godhead has decided that 
both for the reconciliation of people to himself and for all these other areas of reconciliation, for the, for the accomplishment of his master plan in the world, it's not going to be done directly through the power of the Holy Spirit by itself, but it's going to be done through the agency of communities of local believers and the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, but we must admit that there is brokenness in the local community. I think we all have an idea of, of, of what a good community ought to look like. Uh, and I want to share with you a, a depiction of community that comes from a, a TV series that ran throughout the 1980s and into the early 90s. And this is a picture of community in a bar in Boston called Cheers. I'm not going to sing this, not because I can't, but because I don't want this ditty running through your mind the rest of the day. I want you to go from here with one of the great worship songs we sing uh, ringing through your head the rest of the day. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see that our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. And that resonates with us. We understand that if we're, if we're looking for community, whether it be a bowling league or a bar, that, that there's some good aspects to this. I hope that already this morning you realize that I think the community of local believers ought to offer to its members and the rest of the world a whole lot more than the Cheers bar can. But might I suggest that we should never offer less than the things described here? If we wanted to put theological words to this ditty, it would, it, we'd come up with things like hospitable, welcoming, empathetic, right? Uh, maybe unconditional acceptance. And yet we have to admit that the church is not always characterized by that. We're, I think most of us have church experiences where we'd say, yeah, there, there wasn't a whole lot of unconditional acceptance going on there. One of the things we do in church is uh, pretend and, and make ourselves look better than we do. We, we often pretend that here at Antioch Church, we're, we're just like the folks of Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average, right? Um, but we sometimes go worse than that. Sometimes we... we call out certain sins in those around us and, and contrary to Scripture, make them somehow more heinous than the sins that, that I myself struggle with. Um, things like gossip and slander, those aren't as serious as some of these sexual relationships that are out there. We, we, we pump ourselves up with a sense of righteousness and, and are able to hold others off at arm's length because they've got these obvious sins that certainly the Lord cares more about than my hidden sins of, of pride and, and lust and, and maybe covetousness, right? Have, have any, anybody else experienced that in the church? Um, when I was a young man, the message I got from the church was that Christian man, a Christian man is someone who doesn't drink or smoke or kiss girls who do, right? And so just like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, the, the group of folks for whom he had the nastiest words, we, we artificially skew the playing field so that we can feel better about ourselves and those out there, the other, the, uh, 
are not quite up to where we are, right? This is, this is contrary to everything Jesus uh, taught and, and exemplified. Several years ago, I was at a retreat with a bunch of Christian men at Camp Tadmore, and the worship leader was a guy named John Fisher. John Fisher's singer-songwriter, part of the Jesus movement of the 1960s, and famous for having published the very first contemporary Christian album, because his first album came out a little bit before Larry Norman's first album. Um, but at this retreat, which was Baptist men here on the West Coast, uh, John shared a story of a prior retreat. And he, he situated that prior retreat on the East Coast with Presbyterians. I kind of thought at the time, and still think today, that when he's back East with Presbyterians, he situates the same story with West Coast Baptists. But in this story, the, the particular weekend retreat was, uh, th there was a, a group of guys that were work release or, or minimum security parolees or something like that who did the cooking and the serving of the meals and the, and the dishwashing and then would join the so-called Presbyterians for the worship service. And at one point in the worship service, as they were singing Amazing Grace, John Fisher says, sinners only on the next verse. At which point, the Presbyterians got a little antsy and looked around at each other to see whether they were supposed to be singing, whereas the work release guys stood right up, puffed their chests out, and belted out that next verse of Amazing Grace. Brothers and sisters, we, we need to realize that all of our interactions are to be characterized by grace, that the accurate understanding of the righteousness that we bring to community is nil until the Lord himself, until God himself imputes upon us the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And I guess at this time we can lead into our scripture reading, which is in your brochure, if you have our series brochure with you. Uh, but before we go there, this, this scripture comes from Luke 15 and is the, the latter part of what we normally call the parable of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. But I want to introduce it with the help of my younger son, Jasper, uh, who's gone prodigal. Oh, there he is. Um, so this is the first part of that same parable. Do you ever get bored with your average everyday existence? I know I sure do. Well, I should say I did. Then I decided to do something about it. You see, conventional wisdom says that you live your life, and then when you're older, your parents pass away, and you get whatever they have left, an inheritance, right? Well, I'm sorry, but that just wasn't good enough for me. I mean, come on. Give me the money while I'm young so I can really enjoy it. So here's what I did. I walked right up to my dad, and I said, Dad, Dad, I want what's coming to me. That's what my younger son said to me. What's coming to me? At that point, I'm thinking, I'll give you what's coming to you. Who does he think he is demanding things from me? Hey, I brought him into this world and I can take him out and make another to replace him. <laughs> but he's my son and I love him. So as much as it pained me to do it, I decided to give him what he'd asked for and to seek a better life on his own. Not long after, he packed his bags and the next thing I knew... I was out of there! Kissed that boring place goodbye. There was a whole world just waiting for me to discover it. So the first thing I did was... He got lost. Hey, I love him, but he's no Magellan. 
fact, I heard he had to stop four times to ask for directions before he got out of our hometown. That's not true. It was only three. And one of those doesn't count because I couldn't understand what the one guy was saying. I just nodded my head and left. And anyways, the reason I'm not good with directions is because somebody didn't take the time to teach me. Well, let's not go there. Anyway, that's not important. What does matter is that I did make it out of town and then I began to live it up. I had it all. More friends than I knew what to do with, the best clothes money could buy, all the ladies I could ask for. I was eating like a king. Man, it was awesome. Until... His money ran out about the same time that the whole country hit a recession. There wasn't any work to be found. I tried and tried, but I couldn't get a job. I searched and searched, and eventually I did find a position as a manager. Eh. Okay, not exactly a manager, but an associate. Eh. Okay, okay. I was a bacon preparation assistant. Which means? I took care of pigs. I couldn't believe my life had come to this. I'd squandered everything my dad had given me. I didn't really have a place to live. I wasn't eating much. There were days when I would have gladly eaten the disgusting scraps I had to feed to the pigs, but I couldn't. They wouldn't let me. So as hunger pains is a constant reminder of how I'd squandered my life away, I lived a life of misery day after day after, after day, day after, after day, day after day. I watched and I waited. And I looked to see my son come home. And most importantly, I didn't give up on him. I just knew that one day he would come home. I knew it would happen one day. One day it hit me, and I realized that back at my father's house, the lowliest worker was better off than I was. I mean, they had a place to live, they had food to eat. They were living like kings compared to me. And so I wondered, what if he doesn't come to his senses? What if he never comes home? What if I never see him again? Again and again, I ran these things through my mind as I made the long journey back to my father's house. I knew what I would do. I would go up to my father and I would humbly ask him to take me on as one of his workers. I couldn't ask for a handout and I didn't deserve to ask him to take me back as his son, but just maybe he would hire me, just maybe. Maybe today is the day that he'll come back, was the thought that ran through my mind every day. Maybe today, while I'm watching and waiting, I'll see him come over the horizon as he makes his journey back home. Home. It's a word that describes so many things. Comfort, care, acceptance, security, love. And now I was only a few hundred yards away from it. It was a beautiful day. I was sitting on the porch enjoying a cool breeze when I saw him. He stood up out of his chair, looked in my direction, and squinted his eyes to get a better look at me. I wondered what he was thinking. I wondered how he felt about me. Would he say, I told you so? I told you so. I told you so. I told you he would come back. None of you would listen to, to me, but I knew he'd come back. I knew. I just knew I'd made the wrong decision. The closer I got, the, the more I knew that he would be angry with me. And so I stopped. He just stood there. I couldn't move. I couldn't just stand there, so... He jumped. He literally jumped off the porch. I'd never seen him do that before. He was like a kid, all excited about something. And then it hit me. He was excited about me. So what did I do? You know what I did next? I, I ran. ran. My heart was pounding, but all I could do was run toward him. I'd never seen him run so fast. His arms were stretched out wide as if to say, Welcome home. Welcome home, I shouted, but, but we both kept running. We both kept running towards each other. I just wanted him to jump into my arms like he did when he was a little kid so that I could tell him that everything would be all right. 
As he got closer, I could see tears running down his face. He was crying. Tears of joy. You know what my son did next? I he jumped. jumped. I actually jumped. And my father? I caught him. Then? He hugged me. My father embraced me like only a father can. I'm so sorry, I said. Please forgive me. I don't deserve to be called your son. My son. My son is back. Bring him some new clothes. Put shoes on his feet. Prepare a meal for him. No, a feast, for my son will no longer live life as an orphan. Tonight we will celebrate, for all our hopes have come true. I guess it was hope that kept me going. Hope that somehow my father would have mercy on me. That somehow he would take me back. Hope that I would be forgiven. Forgiven. It's all forgiven. I'll never bring it up again. There's no blame. There's no anger. There's only joy. For my son was lost, but now is found. So here at Antioch, one of our long-term missions partnerships is uh, with Christian folks in Nicaragua, and particularly with a place called the House of Hope. House of Hope is a ministry to women and young girls who have either been rescued out of sex slavery or who have voluntarily left a, a life of prostitution. And each time we take a team down there, one of the things we participate in is a Tuesday morning event in which more than 100 women from all over the capital city of Managua come to the House of Hope for a, a time of worship and Bible study. Uh, three years ago, Jarrell and I took a team of high school youth from Antioch down there. And uh, the only female leader on that trip was my son Jasper's now fiance, Taylor Maine. And Taylor and I adapted this skit that Tuesday morning. Uh, this skit is by the skit guys, uh, Eddie James and Tommy Woodard. But we adapted it that morning for those women at the House of Hope to be the prodigal daughter. And I think you can imagine that the women in that situation have a real struggle appreciating the idea that, that the holy God of the universe has love and, and forgiveness and grace even for people who have lived the kinds of lives that they have come out of. And so maybe you can imagine the powerful way in which the Holy Spirit was able to use that skit that morning to, to melt and win the hearts of several of those women who had never before that day understood how great is the Father's love and mercy and compassion. And so a big part of what I want to share with you this morning is just that, that the Lord's own view of what the local community of believers looks like is radically inclusive. That in fact, we should be a cross-section of every ethnic and socioeconomic and education level in, in the broader communities that we represent. And of course, that's not always the case. Um, the New Testament, the, the context of the ancient Near East in which the New Testament is written is quite a bit different than that of our day in 21st century Central Oregon, right? And so I, I think we need to use a, a sort of sanctified imagination when we come to tales of Jesus' ministry and the parables he taught to really understand how radical and shocking is his love and, and forgiveness. So for instance, there's a story in John 4 of Jesus walking through Palestine and he goes out of his way to a Samaritan city called Sychar in order to have a meaningful, life-transforming 
relationship with a Samaritan woman at a well, right? She's got several strikes against her. For one thing, she's a woman. For another thing, she's a Samaritan. And as we find out in the, in the account in John 4, uh, she's living out of wedlock and she's already been through five husbands prior to that. Might I suggest to you that if Jesus were walking bodily through Oregon today, that the same account would have him going out of his way to East Portland to have an interaction with an HIV-infected transgender person? And if, if my saying that shocks you, then you're in good company with Jesus' original disciples who were utterly shocked to find him having an, a conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. When we come to this parable of the, the prodigal son, we need to understand that every element of the prodigal's life, as Jesus told this tale, was to shock his Jew, Jewish listeners into the understanding that this prodigal had done absolutely everything possible to dishonor and shame and, and break the rules of his family and his people. And, and I'm not gonna fill in the blanks for you of what that would look like today, but maybe you can take some time this afternoon or later in the week to think, what level of depravity and shame and dishonor and illegality would be the equivalent in our day that the Father, who of course in Jesus' parable represents our Heavenly Father, can overlook in order to bring as an adopted son back into the family, right? Um, so we as the local body of believers are not only the agency that God has chosen to bring about his master plan of reconciling all things to himself, but we are also to be representative of unity in the broadest diversity possible. The way Galatians 3.28 has it is that in Christ there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, man nor woman. Might I add, Democrat nor Republican. You see, God wants his local church, us, Antioch, to be radically diverse in every respect possible, and yet exemplary of a unity and peace and reconciliation that can only be arrived at supernaturally. That the fact that we can be in community with brothers and sisters who have stabbed us in the back is a testimony to the fact that there's something supernatural going on here, right? And of course, even though it is supernatural, it depends upon our availing ourselves of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Um, whenever you talk about community and, and try to tell people that they need to be committed to a local church, the, the compulsory passage in Scripture comes from Hebrews 10.25. In, in the ESV, it would read something like, don't neglect the assembling together of the saints, as is the habit of some. Um, I want to share that verse with you from a slightly different translation. This is the Wycliffe Bible Translator's uh, translation of the New Testament into the Hawaii Pigeon vernacular. It's called the Jesus Book. 
And, and so this comes from Photo-Hebrew Foda, people, 1025. And it says this. I, I do this to give you a fresh perspective on this, not to make it more obscure. No stop coming to get a faux church, ja like some people, no coming no more. Mo better this. Give each other good, kind words and do them even more plenty because you guys know the boss Jesus coming back pretty soon. I want to focus on this phrase, mo better this. See, whenever I've heard uh, Hebrews 10.25 preached, it usually was an attempt to say, you got to be in church on Sunday morning. And so I took the message to mean that, you know, if I'm over in the valley because of a family soccer tournament or something, if I can possibly squeeze it in, I need to visit a church while I'm there because I'm not home in Antioch. I think the mo better this part of this passage is saying something different, that we need to be such a committed part of this unified, diverse congregation right here, Antioch, that, it, that if you take your kids over to a curling tournament in the valley, you need to be regretting the fact that you weren't here. You need to be on the phone to, to somebody in your small group saying, what did I miss? What, what was the main thing you took from Pastor Pete's sermon this morning? What was the worship song that you're still singing that, that helped you get closer to the Lord and to his master plan for what we're involved in? Uh, was there somebody that I need to be praying for? Did you, did you hear any news of somebody in the community that, that I need to be praying for or even sharing a meal with? I think that's the mo better this of Hebrews 10.25, and that's what community looks like, and that's what the Lord is calling us into. Um, so in your brochure for this week, we've, uh, we've inserted four uh, practices that you should consider not just this week, but every week as, as we go about becoming a more tightly knit community of Christ followers. Um, and the first one is share a meal with someone in the church. This is an easy one. We're all going to eat probably three times a day. This is as easy as looking across the aisle right now and, and doing the sign language for, hey, let's go to uh, wherever, Black Bear Diner, or, right? Um, Share a meal with someone. Ask somebody that you, that you haven't ever met before if they want to come to your house for dinner. And, and that way we'll get to know each other and we'll become a tighter-knit community, as is the Lord's will for us. Second one is commit to serving the church with your gifts. There's all kinds of needs uh, to put on Sunday morning here or, or to serve throughout the week. There's a set-up-and-tear-down crew that gets here early and, and leaves late. There's a need for workers in the children's ministry at all times. We've just recently launched a, I don't even know what we call it, but a, a committee that cares for people in need, uh, and whether it be fixing appliances or, or construction or whatever else. Uh, there's all sorts of teams. There's a security team that's walking around on Sunday mornings making sure this is a safe place for us. There's all kinds of ways in which you can serve Think this morning about adding some area of service to your commitment to Antioch Church if you're not already doing so. Uh, the fourth one is ask God who you need to forgive. Uh, you know, the easiest way to, to remain unified is to just give up when somebody offends us, right? To, to walk out and go find another church where we haven't yet taken offense. That's not... That's a failure of the process that God intends for us. 
God intends for us to work through and forgive when there is harm or offense taken. Um, It's cheating to arrive at unity through the path of uniformity. When everyone looks and dresses and behaves and thinks politically just like us, that's not the unity and diversity to which God is calling us, right? And so we need to be the people who, when we take offense, when somebody says something we don't agree with, when somebody slanders us or in any other way harms us, we need to come to a position of forgiveness. And that applies both within our community and elsewhere. For many of you, the person your, your heavenly father wants you to forgive is your earthly father. For many of you, the brokenness that you bring to this community can all be traced to an abusive or absentee relationship with, with your own father. And the kind of forgiveness that I'm asking you to this morning isn't dependent upon a, an apology from that other person. But your ability to be a functioning part of this body that is, that is in partnership with the Lord of the universe in his master plan of reconciling all things to himself depends upon your first being reconciled to that person that God is calling you to forgive. The fourth one is think of a way to bless someone in the Antioch community. And there's, every one of us needs to be blessed by somebody else. Uh, whether it be kind words or, or whatever, the mo better dis of, of that particular passage we just shared is these sorts of things. These aren't for just this week. It's just this week that we're talking about them, right? So whenever I've listened to a, a sermon on, on the subject of being committed to the local church, I've gotten a sense that, that it was supposed to be out of duty and, and there was a sense of guilt tied to it. And I haven't gone there this morning because I think this is another area in which the carrot is more powerful than the stick. And, and so here's the carrot. And if you've been with me all through this morning's talk, you've heard a little bit of this, but I want to be real explicit. The greatest, most important most satisfying, most worthwhile, most exciting adventure that anybody can be a part of is being in partnership with the Lord of the universe in his master plan of reconciling all things to himself. And the only way to be in on that adventure is to be a committed part of a local body of believers. You don't get the satisfaction or the thrill just by attending Sunday morning services. It's by experiencing the the unity in diversity that comes from being committed, serving an integral and missed when you're not there part of a local community. And that's the only way of being a participant in this great adventure that is partnering with the Lord of the universe in his master plan. Achieving the American dream doesn't even come close. Gaining notoriety in your own career, way distant in terms of the satisfaction and thrill that come from partnering with the Lord of the universe by being a committed part of a local body of believers like Antioch. So as I invite you now to the the communion table this morning, your coming up here is not just to, to get in touch with your creator and Lord, your heavenly father who has 
covered all of your sins by the blood of his son. But it's also uh, a time in which you can recommit to being a committed part of this, his local body, through which, for reasons of his own, he's decided to work out all of his purpose and master plan for this creation, Antioch Church. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm just so thankful this morning for everyone here and everyone who's usually here that's not here this morning, for everyone that you have called to be a part of your, your special ops team to carry out your mission in the world today. Lord, you've told us in passages like Ephesians 1, 4, that not only the incarnation and death and resurrection of your son was planned from before the foundation of the world, but that our being chosen for this local community, just as the Ephesians of the first century were chosen to be a part of that community, that you have chosen us from before time began to be here this morning as part of a committed team that would be growing in unity despite our diversity and growing in our understanding of how we can be your agents of reconciliation in our cities, in our world today, of reconciliation of the very creation around us. We thank you for that wonderful privilege and for the death and resurrection of your son that made it all possible. And we commune with you now as we come before your table as he prescribed 2,000 years ago. It's in Jesus' powerful name that we pray. Amen.